Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse number 7. And we're going to go from verses 7 to verses ni verse 19. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 3, verse number 7. Let's stand yet one more time as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. The Holy Spirit says today through John Mark. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make it known. And he went up on a mountain, on the mountain, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name the Sons of Thunder, Andrew, and Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of the phrase, so close, but so far away? It's an expression that we use, that something so close to happening, just right there for the grasping, and yet it doesn't happen, and it was as if there was nothing ever close to that happening. It's the difference between winning and losing. You know, football games are games of inches. It's just needing one more inch to get the touchdown on fourth down at the end of the game. It's, it's you know, it's like the Gators yesterday. They were so close. They got the onside kick. It was a thing of beauty. And then they threw an interception. So close, so far away. It's the difference between being in business class and coach on an airplane. Have you ever sat at the very front of coach and you stare into business class in front of you and there's a little thin curtain and you can see them having the time of their lives? 
caviar is raining down. They're passing out all the drinks and all this, and they're having a party, and you're back with the cattle in coach. So close, so far away. Or have you ever got on the Disney app to get tickets for the Guardian of the Galaxy's ride? You get up at six o'clock in the morning really early and you get ready. And at 6.58, you have your app on and you are ready and you're constantly hitting the button, hitting the button, hitting the button. At seven o'clock, you hit the button. You say a lot of prayers and you hit the button and the thing says all the passes are gone for the day. And you go into the park and you walk by this new attraction and all those people go in and they have a pass and you don't have a pass. So close, so far away, and I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> well, sometimes that's how it is when it comes to a lot of people in the church. So close to Jesus, but yet so far away from Jesus. Mark here in his gospel is shifting gears. We've just finished five accounts where the religious establishment challenges the authority of Jesus. And now he's shifting gears to talk about what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus is now going to unleash his disciple-making strategy, his church-planning strategy. And, and in this shifting of gears, there's an important question that's going to kind of reverberate throughout these next few sermons, and, and, and that is this. How do I know that I'm inside of the kingdom of God? How, how do I know that I'm on the inside? Is it based on my moral behavior? Is it based on my family background? Is it based on my ability, my theology, or my proximity to Jesus? Or is it something else? And so what we're going to learn is that Jesus is going to teach us in this little text, which is very kind of a transitionary verses, kind of what a lot of people just kind of read through to get to something else. What Jesus is going to teach us is the difference between the crowds around him and those who are called to follow him. And what we're going to see is that what makes you a part of God's kingdom is not how close you think you are to Jesus, but it's his personal call on your life and how you respond to it. So let's, let's dive in. Number one, the crowd, those close to Jesus, but far from him. Verse seven, Jesus withdrew with his disciples. He just left uh, Capernaum, he was in the synagogue. It was on the Sabbath. As soon as church was over, the Pharisees, the religious people, left church angry, and they decided to plot murder with their enemies, the Herodians. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so the enemy of their enemies was their best friend. And so Jesus, even though he had people that wanted to kill him, was still very popular. Mark tells us that masses of people are coming from all over the region to see him, to hear him, and ultimately to touch him. They come from Lebanon up in the north, the capitalists out to the east in Jordan. They come from the south in the Negev. And so Jesus gets on the boat, and, and whenever Jesus lands, whatever he landed, there were 16, we know, ports on the Sea of Galilee. We're not exactly sure where. As soon as he steps foot onto the dry land, there is a crowd of people already there. Jesus is a rock star in this 
time. He is a celebrity. Why is he such a celebrity? Well, because he had healed many people of their diseases, what the Bible says in verse 10. And it was so much so that people wanted to be around him that they pressed around him. There was no social distancing. They were crowding him. And the verses, or the words here that Mark's going to use in the, in the verses following this is, is describing a violent, aggressive, pushing mob of people trying to touch him. And why were they so emphatic? Why were they so desperate? Well, because first century medicine was horrible. It was primitive. Uh, doctors in that day that were practicing doctors. I mean, today doctors still practice. They're still practicing just like meteorologists are practicing meteorology. <laughs> are you in the cone? Are you out of the cone? Do you want an ice cream cone? I don't know. But in that day, doctors uh, would bleed their patients. Uh, they would almost poison their patients. They would bore holes in their patients' skulls to heal them. And for many, the cure was far worse than the disease. I mean, imagine you have a fever and the doctor says, let me put a hole in your head. And so the life expectancy of most in Jesus's day was in the mid-30s. A lot of scholars believe that when Jesus calls these disciples, they were teenagers. And so people didn't live very long. The simple sicknesses as cold or, or a fever could kill you. And so the sick and the injured from all over the region came to be healed by Jesus because they were absolutely desperate. And so desperate times calls for desperate measures. And so Jesus is this faith healer, this magician, uh, this genie. And so we're going to go and just touch him. And so it was so bad that Jesus had a boat ready, told the disciples, hey, listen, some of y'all stay on the boat because if it gets real bad, we're gone. And, and think about it, many in our day would have sold their souls to have the kind of publicity and, and celebrity as Jesus. I mean, think about it. It's been said that, that Generation Z, which is the upcoming generation, uh, is that like 40, 50% of them, their aspirations are to be a social media influencer. And so here, I mean, if Jesus had a TikTok account, it would have gone viral. People would, I mean, he would have had more followers, more likes, more comments than anyone else. But yet Jesus was not captivated by the crowds. He, he, he had a greater mission than just drawing crowds and healing people. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here's the one thing that you have to understand. Crowds are fickle. Like, I don't live my life based on the crowds because I used to be a crowd addict and I realized that crowds are fickle. If you live by the crowds, you'll die when the crowds leave because the crowds will turn on you in a moment whenever you don't perform the way they want you to perform or whenever you don't give them what they want at a cost that's acceptable to them. It's amazing. Even in the year that I've been here, the emails that we have gotten as a staff of people saying, I'm not going to come to that church anymore because of this, that, and the other. And none of it has to be theology. None of it has to be methodology. It all has to be about preference. And so Jesus understands you don't trust the crowds. And Jesus saw the hearts of all that were there that day. And there are two things that we see about the crowds. Number one, what we're going to learn is that attraction to Jesus does not mean that you're following Jesus. 
people in that day were attracted to Jesus. Everyone was talking about him. Everyone wanted to see him, to touch him, and to get a piece of him. They, but, but they only wanted him for what he could do for them and what they could get from him. They didn't want him for him, and they definitely didn't want his gospel. R.C. Sproul, who writes a commentary on this text, he says, sadly, it is clear that the overwhelming desire of the crowds was not for Jesus' message, but for his healing touch. They were seeking to be relieved of their pain and suffering. And we understand if you're hurting, you want to be healed. But he goes on, R.C. says, in other words, they were more concerned with their bodies than their souls. This is going to be a constant theme in Jesus's ministry that they're after him, not for him. They're after him for what he can do for them. I mean, in John chapter six, after he had fed thousands of people with uh, the fishes and the loaves, he said to the crowd, he says, you're seeking me, not because you believe in me, because you saw the signs. You, you are here because you ate of the loaves and you saw and thought that I was a perpetual golden corral. That's the Allen version of that. See, the crowds wanted their fix, but they didn't want to follow Jesus. Sometimes we just come to church for a fix. We don't come to follow. No one in that crowd was willing to pay the cost to follow. They wanted the free healing, but they didn't want the cost of following. And a lot of people on our day, and maybe it's less in America, but many, especially in the South, are attracted to Jesus. They just don't want to follow Jesus. They, they want just enough Jesus to feel good about themselves, but not enough of Jesus to actually allow him to change them. You know, I like country music. Anyone like country music? You say amen. It's all right. But I like the old country music. I don't like no new country music in country music. It's baloney. Amen. Somebody said you can put country and rap together, and what do you get? And I said, you put them together and see. It's bad. But I like country music. But if you listen to some of it, here's kind of what you get the heart of it. Even the old stuff is like this. Is that they're whole, in, their, in their lyrics, you, you'll hear this kind of theme, that they're hoping that God will let them into heaven after they've had a little fun on earth. And so you hear some of the lyrics and, and, and between singing about old memories and breakups and cheating spouses and shooting jukeboxes, and driving down dirt roads, and drinking beer with their buddies. There's a few shout-outs to Jesus. Jesus gets a few shout-outs of country music. There, there's a, a few songs about heaven in country music, but here's what you find. A lot of the lyrics in country music reveal where a lot of people's hearts are, especially in the cultural South, where we want just enough Jesus to be identified with him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced by him. And so you can be attracted to Jesus and wear the bracelets and have the bumper stickers and still not follow Jesus. And the second thing we see here is that acknowledgement of Jesus does also not mean that you follow Jesus. So you can acknowledge who Jesus is and still not follow him. And we see this vividly in verse 11 when he talks about the unclean spirits, the demons. When the demons saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. I mean, if you read Mark's gospel, there's only two that have told us who he is. The father at Jesus' baptism says, this is my beloved son. And then the two demons or the two or three demons we've seen thus far where they say Jesus is the son of God. Only the demons at this point knew Jesus' identity. And they had great theology. They made a great confession. 
They knew what the crowds didn't know. They knew what the disciples didn't know. They understood what the disciples couldn't at that moment understand. And they had a great confession. But let me just let you in on something. A confession of who Jesus is doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. You can talk a big game. You could quote Bible verses. You could spout out big theological words. You can pray pious prayers and still not have a relationship with Jesus because being a follower of Jesus is more than just admitting the truth. I mean, you can attend a thousand Bible studies, attend seminary, have more degrees than a thermometer in theology and still die and go to hell. I mean, any of you all play fantasy football? Some of you do. A lot of you wives, you know your husband does, right? Some of you do. I, listen, I, I've got a big decision to make in about an hour. I've got to hurry this sermon up. I've got to make a decision whether to start a, my quarterback or not. But I can tell you a lot of statistics. I can tell you a lot of information about my players. I can tell you what team they play on. I can tell you a lot of, about them. And, but I don't really know them. I don't know them at all. The same is true even in the church. We can know a lot of things about Jesus. We know a lot of things about the Bible and still have no relationship with Jesus. And I think one of the ways that we're seeing this revealed is through what's happening in the, next, in the, in the generation right now. We see this even in parenting. Last week I shared with you that survey from Barna that found that 64% of those who are currently 18 to 29 Kids who grew up in the church have, are leaving or have left the church, 64% of them. And many of you say, well, there's many reasons for that. And there are. There are many things that we can say of the reason why people and kids especially are leaving the church. But I'm afraid that one of the main reasons why our kids are leaving the church once they get out of our house is because we have put the emphasis on imparting information about Jesus rather than them having a genuine love for Jesus. That the emphasis is you got to know the Ten Commandments in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. You got to be able to recite Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer. You got to know all 66 books of the Bible, and you got to be able to stand up and tell people all the stuff that you know if you're ever on Bible Jeopardy. And the problem is, is that our kids can know a lot of stuff about Jesus and still not know Jesus. And I'm afraid that even sometimes in our churches, that we can teach moralism rather than a love for Jesus. Now listen, we can't make our kids fall in love with Jesus, but we can set them up, as I've said before, many, as many dates as possible. We, we can't make them, but we can model to them what it looks like to have a relationship. But I'm afraid that a lot of parents are so excited about their kids making a confession of faith without having a real relationship. I mean, we, we celebrate baptism here. We're excited for baptism. But one of the things that we're very careful is when kids are baptized, that they go through a class and that they understand and that they know this is a real relationship, a genuine relationship, not just something I do to make mommy and daddy happy. And I'm afraid that a lot of kids are just doing things to make mommy and daddy happy and they have no relationship with Jesus and no desire to follow him. You ever heard of VeggieTales? Larry the Cucumber, Bob the Tomato. The creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, said in an interview a few years ago to Lifeway, he said, I spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. 
He said, VeggieTales morphed into moralism depicted in Bible stories without teaching kids to believe the gospel and follow Jesus. Understand this. The demons in hell acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is. The demons in hell could win Bible jeopardy. The demons in hell knew who Jesus was, but they refused to submit their lives to him. Many in our day will affirm that Jesus is the savior of the world, but they will not trust him as their savior. And many will affirm that he is the Lord of lords, but they will not submit to his lordship. They will not surrender their lives to him. What a lot of people want is they want a religion without any type of repentance. And there you see the crowd. The crowd acknowledges Jesus has no relationship with Jesus. The crowd is attracted to Jesus, but has no relationship with Jesus. But that's the crowd, those who are so close to Jesus, they could touch him and yet so far away from him. But then you see the called, those who are called by Jesus and are following him. We see that in verse 13. So after this, Jesus gets on a boat, gets away from the crowd. He then goes up on a mountain. We don't exactly know where the mountain is, but Jesus went from the cruise ship to a mountain retreat. Mountains were all around the Sea of Galilee, and mountains were a place that Jesus spent time, especially to get away from people. Mountains in the life of Jesus were a place of prayer, a place of instruction, a place of revelation, a place of healing, and a place of decisions. Luke tells us in Luke 6, 12, that the night before Jesus makes this decision, which is to call the 12, uh, he's going to spend the entire night in prayer. And as I'm thinking about that, if Jesus before on the very eve of making one of the biggest decisions of his ministry, if he spent the entire evening in prayer, if Jesus felt that he needed to pray, how much more should we feel the need to pray? And so he called those. He spent the night in prayer. He brings them up to the mountain. He calls those to whom he desired. Notice here that followers of Jesus are called by Jesus. They are made by Jesus. And you will never know Jesus unless Jesus first calls you. It's the greatest call you'll ever get. Let me just give you a little theology here. There are two types of call when it comes to the gospel. There is a general call, which is a call of the gospel out to the world that says, whosoever will may come. This is a call that we can tell everybody that Jesus has died on the cross, rose from the dead, repent and believe the gospel. Whosoever will may come. That's the general call of the gospel. But then there's a special call of the gospel, which is a supernatural call that is effectively worked by the Holy Spirit of God. And if you are a Christian, if you are saved, you have experienced that special supernatural call of God in your life. And what we learn here is that disciples of Jesus don't apply. They don't sign up for it. This was counterintuitive. Uh, rabbis in Jesus' days, we've talked before, they, they didn't call their own disciples. Young men who had gone through the first two levels of the Jewish educational system, those who were the best and the brightest would apply like many of you, maybe you have kids that are seniors or juniors and you're thinking about college applications and college admissions. And so these young men and their parents would apply to these famous rabbis. They would give a lot of money. They would beg. They would plead, just make me your disciple. And then the rabbi would look at his, the people that are applying and he would look for the best educated, the ones who gave the most money, the ones who had the best ability, the ones who had the best personality, and he would choose them. Well, here, Jesus does not condition his call on how much money these people give, 
how educated they were, who had the best personality, and who had the best ability. Because as you look at the roster here in a moment, they're not the best of the best. If you were going to start a new movement, you wouldn't start with these turkeys. But the reason that the God, Jesus, chose them is his gracious will. Jesus tells us in John 15, 16, he told the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And here's what you got to get for all of us today. We didn't desire him, but he desires us. We didn't pursue him. He initiated the relationship. You say, well, preacher, I decided to follow Jesus. Well, in that moment, you felt that you did, but you'll look back after in your life and you'll see, no, it wasn't me that was following him and pursuing him. He was pursuing me. And so he calls them. Well, what is this calling? Verse 14. So he appointed the 12. Notice here, verse 14. So that they may, two things, they may be with him and that he might send them out. The purpose of his calling was to be with him and to be sent by him. The call was a relationship with him and to be on mission for him. The first thing we see is discipleship is a relationship with Jesus. It's not a to-do list. Jesus has first called us to be with him, not to just do stuff for him. And so that's the first calling. Not just I got to do stuff to please him, but no, because of Jesus, I can be with him. I mean, who would want to be married to a to-do list? I mean, what if, that, if all your relationship is with your wife was a honey-do list? Somebody in 830 said, well, that's my relationship right now. <laughs> You don't want a relationship that's all about what you do. You want a relationship about the person, who they are, and who you are. All relationships require that you spend time with the other person. I mean, if you say you're, a, you're married, but you never talk to your spouse, you never spend time with your spouse, you never think about your spouse, you never serve your spouse, then I'm going to ask you, is your marriage even real? So the first relationship that he calls us to is a relationship with him. God, the God of the universe, has called you to have a special, intimate, personal relationship with him. He brings us in so that he can send us out. So he brought them in and then sends them out, sends them out to preach. The word apostle sent one. Every disciple of Jesus is a preacher, not someone that stands in the pulpit and preaches, but everyone is a sharer, a proclaimer. We are to share with others the good news of the kingdom of God. Every believer this side of heaven has a responsibility to share the gospel with every unbeliever this side of hell. It, we are nobodies that tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That is our call. We are called to be with him and then we are sent on mission for him. And we're called to preach. And secondly, he says here that he called them to not only preach, send them out to preach, but also to cast out demons. Now, some of you are maybe skeptical now. You're saying, all right, so you're telling me that I'm called to be in a relationship with Jesus and that he's given me the ability to share the gospel and to cast out demons. And you say, so now I can cast out demons. And I'll say, well, you have that authority in Jesus' name. So you're saying, oh, really? Well, then I'm going to start at home with my kids. Satan be gone. It's not exactly what's going on here. What, what Jesus is telling us is that he has given us the authority, the ability, the empowerment to do the mission he's called us to do. And so we've been brought in to be sent out and to be sent out on mission for him. And just as powerful as it is to heal diseases and cast out demons, we've been given an even greater task. And that task is the great commission that Jesus gave in which he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, that's the Great Commission. 
And the same one who gave us that great commission also said before that great commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So everything, all authority up there and all authority down here has been given to Jesus and Jesus has now authorized us to do the work. And so that's what he's doing here. He's authorizing them. He's empowering them. See, when Jesus healed diseases and cast out demons, the reason why this is such a big deal and why this was so important in that day is that it was proof that the kingdom of God has come on the earth. Well, as believers, we have a greater mission. And we are to live our lives in such a way that demonstrates the king is on the throne in the castle of our hearts and that the kingdom of God has come inside of us. And so far than just a ministry of power, we can actually demonstrate through our lives that the kingdom has come. And we do that through our words, through our actions, through our love and through the willingness we have to pay the cost of following Jesus. And so we are called to be with him and we are called to be on mission for him. And so notice here who he calls. He appointed 12. Now, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. There are at least 70 that he sends out. There are many women that follow Jesus. But here, these 12 are those that he personally would mentor and pour his life into to raise them up to reach the nations with the gospel. And what makes this list so incredible is how ordinary this list is. These are just a bunch of ordinary men with diverse backgrounds. But they're interesting. The first name is Simon who's also Peter. He's not the first pope, but he is the first among equals. Uh, before the day of Pentecost, where he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we can say that he was an idiot. He was loud. He was obnoxious. He was impulsive. Even after being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he was still an idiot. But he was an idiot filled with the Spirit of God. He had struggles like all of us do. Then you have James and John, they're brothers. Jesus gave them a nickname. I mean, have you ever had a nickname? Slick. Hey, Slick. Slim. Whatever. Well, Jesus' nickname for these two guys was Sons of Thunder. It wasn't a necessarily a term of endearment. It meant that these guys were hotheads. They had violent tempers. There's a story in the Bible after uh, a, a city, uh, a, a little village, in, a Samaritan village rejected Jesus. James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you want us to pray to the Father that he would just nuke that village? <laughs> Jesus said, no, I need to come to blow up places. <laughs> and so these guys were, were hotheads. And so the inner circle of Jesus was an impulsive loudmouth and two hotheads. Surely this is a Baptist church, right? Peter, James, and John, impulsive, loud hotheads. And then you have this other list of guys. You have Andrew, which is Peter's brother, first one who told Peter about Jesus. And you had Philip. This is a guy that we kind of know a little bit about. I mean, he, he, Jesus asked him a question about money, and Philip had some strange answers. We had Bartholomew, which we know is Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a skeptic. And then we have Thomas. Thomas was a doubter. We have, we have James, the son of Altheus. All we really know about him is his dad's name was Altheus. In other gospel accounts, he's called James the Lesser. I mean, what a name. It's like Alan the Insignificant. I mean, yeah, that's what I want in the Bible. Yeah, thank you. And then Thaddeus, who's Thaddeus? I don't know. Then you have two other guys, Matthew, Levite. He's a tax collector, so he's the, he works for the IRS. 
and everybody loves the IRS. <laughs> he sold his identity to earn money for Rome, who traded his own people, worked for the man, sell out, traitor. And then you have another guy named Simon the Cananean, who is also known as Simon the Zealot, who was a radical revolutionary nationalist who lived and hid in caves. The zealots did terrorist attacks, and they desired to overthrow Rome through bloodshed. And so you have Matthew who worked for the man, and then you had Simon who wanted to kill the man. <laughs> and that was all the group of disciples. Imagine, you have all these, this has been an interesting group to do three years of life with. And all of them are here because of Jesus' call in their life. They are an eclectic group of men who had nothing in common but that. And yet what we see is that their worth and value, because these men are going to literally change the world, their worth and value was not determined by how many people they knew, their education, their background, or their religious acumen. They are who they are because they were chosen by Jesus. And Jesus changed them and made them what he desired them to be. And the same is true with you, that when Jesus called you, it was not because you were awesome, it's because he is awesome. And he is making you to be what you could not be in your own. And, and it is his calling in your life, and it is his grace that changes you from the inside out. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Acts 4, verse 13. When the Bible, the Bible says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and common men. I wonder how they could find out. Probably their accent. They heard their voices they listened to their words and said, these guys are hicks from the sticks, but they have a boldness. They have something different in them. And what was the difference maker? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, all these men heard Jesus's call, believed Jesus's gospel and surrendered their life to Jesus. They turned from saving themselves and from their sins and they came to Jesus just as they were and Jesus made them who they would be. And for them, it was not a one-time sign-a-card ritual, but they chose to be a lifelong disciple of Jesus. They forsook all to follow the call to follow Jesus. And that's the difference. The crowd is close to Jesus, attracted to Jesus, have knowledge, acknowledge who Jesus is, but they do not follow him and therefore they are far from him. And then you have those called, the ones that the world would have written off, those that, that are not worthy, they're not the elite, they're not the, even the best of the best, but yet they're called and because the call of God and their response to that call, they are different and they are inside the kingdom of God. And the same is true. Which one are you? Now, Let's end. And you're like, aren't you missing somebody? And no, I'm not. There's one name I haven't mentioned, and his name is Judas Iscariot. I didn't forget him, and Jesus didn't forget him. And listen, Jesus didn't make a mistake. He wasn't like writing lists and say, well, you know, I accidentally put Judas in there. And like, well, I already said his name, so he's got to be with us. <laughs> No, Jesus was chosen, Judas was chosen by Jesus from the very beginning, and Jesus knew what Judas was going to do before he did it. And if you're like, who is Judas Iscariot? Well, he's a traitor. He um, handed Jesus over, sold him out to be crucified. And, and, and Jesus knew it the whole time. Could you imagine being with 12 guys, living with them, and you know that one of them is going to sell you out the entire time? Jesus 
in John 6 is going to say, did I not choose, this is to his disciples, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And everybody's like, is it me? Am I the devil? And they're all like, well, we think it's Matthew. <laughs> Tax collector. And they're like, what about James the lesser? He don't say much. We don't know. And you say, well, all right. <clears throat> so I'm following your logic, Pastor, here. I've been awake for most of the sermon, and here's kind of what I'm thinking. Didn't Jesus choose Judas? Yes. Didn't Judas get a call from Jesus? Yes. Doesn't that guarantee that Judas is a believer? The answer is no. Because the last thing is proximity to Jesus does not guarantee you're right with God. Judas was a thief. Now, unfortunately, he was the treasurer of the group, but he had sticky fingers. He was stealing from church. And what he did is he saw his relationship with Jesus as an opportunity for fame and what he could get. And so Judas would rather be thought a disciple of Jesus than be one. And what you're going to find is that Judas was a user, not a believer. And I'm afraid that there may be some in this room or watching online, you are here using, but you are not believing. And when you are user and not a believer, when the going gets tough, you take off. Let me end with this. John MacArthur, in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, summed up Judas in this way. He said, Judas is a tragic example of lost opportunity. He heard Jesus teach day in and day out for some two plus years. He could have asked Jesus any question he liked. He could have sought and received from the Lord any help he needed. He could have exchanged the oppressive burden of his sin for an easy yoke. Christ had given an open invitation for anyone to do so. Yet in the end, Judas was damned because of his own failure to heed what he heard. He was given the highest place of privilege among all the Lord's followers, but he squandered that privilege, cashed it in for a fistful of coins he decided he didn't really want after all. What a stupid bargain. Judas exemplifies the ugliness and danger of spiritual betrayal. Would that Judas be the only hypocrite who ever betrayed the Lord? That is not so. There are Judases in every age, people who seem to be true disciples and close followers of Christ, but turn against him for sinister and selfish reasons. Judas's life is a reminder to each of us about our own need for self-examination. I am not here to talk you out of your salvation. I am not here to scare you to believe you're not a Christian, but I am gonna say, are you sure? Do you know that you know that you know you've trusted Christ? You don't have to get saved 17 times. You don't have to ask Jesus to forgive you and save you 17 times. It's once and for all. But have you come to that place in your life where you have surrendered your life to Jesus? As I said last week, are you stopped trying to be your Savior and you're trusting Jesus? Or are you trusting yourself to be your own Savior? That's the decision you have to make. Are you a user or are you a believer? And if you haven't come to that place where you have trusted in Christ, today's the day. I don't care if you've been a church member here all your life. If you've been in the church, you can quote every Bible verse. Do you know Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven that many will come into me that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? Didn't we do that for you? And Jesus is gonna look at them and say, depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. 
what will Jesus say to you? Do you know him? But ultimately, does he know you? Has he called you? And have you followed and responded to that call in faith and repentance to him? If not, today's the day. While I'm praying, you can ask God to save you. You can ask God to forgive you just as you are, just where you are. You don't need me or anybody else. You can speak to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for what you are doing today. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that we are so bad and so evil that you were, you had to die, but so loved that you were willing to die. And Father, today I pray that you would, you would convict the pretenders in this room, the users and not the believers. God, would you call all of us in this room and watching online to that saving faith. Thank you for that call. And for those who have not responded to that call, Lord, today let it be the day of salvation. May it not be that at the end of their lives, they stand before you and quote Bible verses and tell you all that they've done for you. And yet you say, I never knew you. Oh, Lord Jesus, save sinners today. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand. And as the Lord leads you, be honest with Jesus today. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.